reach be the difference. We we uh, breaking down the reach. The, the reach is the way that we're going to accomplish the five E's. How many of you were here for the for the series where we talked about our purpose statement, and mission statement, building friendships, finding God? The five E's. Reach is how we're going to do that. We say we're going to to reach by being relevant, excellent, and today you'll find out what A stands for. But I thought it would be really neat. For you to have an opportunity during this series to hear from someone other than me. And, uh, you know, the scripture teaches us that our deacons are supposed to be apt to teach and preach. And ours are. We have awesome deacons here. And today I have asked one of our deacons, Katie Hill, if he would take letter A and explain to you how we are reaching, what the letter A in the word reach means. And he's going to take a few minutes today, and he's going to be the one to share the word with us. And he's going to talk about that letter A and how, how, what we're doing with that and where we're going from here and to challenge you as, as we all get involved together. So if you would, I want you to put your hands together and welcome Katie Hill to the pulpit. Now, he's not coming just yet. Yeah, it's okay. You could clap even more in a minute. But uh, he is going to be coming here in just a couple of minutes. But before he comes, we have a little bit of a video that we're going to show you. And then then he'll be taking the mic at that point and he'll be sharing with us. Jesus Fan Club Mug, $13. Testament, 50 cents. WWJD Bracelet, $4. Trendy Tea, $15. The Perfectly Placed Ictus on Your Car, $7. of a Christian, worthless. That video says it all. Um, the appearance of a Christian is worthless. As a matter of fact, it's as worthless as a remote with no batteries. It has no effect. And, but the heart of a Christian truly has value, and that is something that does have an effect. Uh, anyone can put on the accessories, but it doesn't define them as a true Christian. As we look at the definition of authentic, um, it would be defined as real or genuine. It would also be defined as true and accurate. Made to look like an original, we are made in His image. In Genesis 1.27, it says that God uh, made us in His image. Also would say that true to one's own spirit or character... And if we see that the Holy Spirit resides within us, well, in Peter 1.14, as an obedient children, do not be conformed to your previous passion or your, previous, or your passion of a former ignorance. So if, in fact, that we are truly residing in the Holy Spirit, then it would be that we wouldn't reside in the old ignorance, in other words, in our old self, but we would have the passion of the Holy Spirit and the move and the power of the Holy Spirit. Authentic also is being defined as conforming to an original as to reproduce essential features like love, gentleness, truth, and compassion. In Galatians 5, 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is things like joy, peace, faithfulness, gentleness. And against those things, there is no such law. So when we look at that, you know, do we have that fruit of the Spirit? Do we possess those things uh, that's defined in the definition of being authentic? 
So what about you? Are you the real deal? Dr. Evan Kane, he was the chief uh, surgeon um, at Kane Summit Hospital in New York City. And uh, as a matter of fact, he'd been there for 37 years. He started to question in the course of time, you know, the, the wisdom in providing a general anesthesia through all surgeries. And as he did that over, the, over that time, he believed that people would recover quicker if they just had a local anesthesia. But no matter how convinced uh, that Dr. Kane was, he couldn't find anybody else uh, to be as convinced as he was. It was hard for him to find a patient. But nobody wanted to go and be the first one uh, to find uh, or to feel the, the uh, cut of the scalpel while they were awake. But, you know, he, he was, a, a, again, for 37 years, this was a, a fairly common practice. According to his own numbers, he had done 4,000 appendectomies in the course of his career. So the procedure was pretty much second nature to him. The patient, uh, he finally found one, was prepped and taken into the operating room, and the local anesthesia was carefully administered. And as uh, was always done, he had made a cut on the right side, and uh, he entered the body cavity and uh, cut off or, or uh, tied off the blood vessels and found the appendix. He excised it, and then uh, always, as before, he sewed it back up. And um, to his own credit, he proved himself correct that throughout the surgery, the patient felt uh, very little pain or discomfort. In fact, the next afternoon, the patient was up and about. And that was really incredible considering this was 1921. Back then, it was common in an appendectomy for people to be in the hospital for six to eight days. So this was quite a miraculous milestone for the world of medicine. However, what made this particular uh, operation noteworthy is that the doctor and the patient were the same. Yes, Dr. Kane had operated on himself. And in fact, today I'm going to ask you uh, to do something similar. Don't get scared. I'm going to ask you to do somewhat of a, a spiritual exploratory surgery. I want you to root around a little bit and inside your soul and just take a real hard, honest look uh, at your spiritual health and see if your faith is as healthy as it should be. See if you can locate the compromise that's inside your soul and allow that to be cut out. In our first text this morning, we're going to be uh, looking at Matthew. And this is from the um, famous sermon of Jesus uh, preached the Sermon on the Mount as he's standing up on this hillside. And when we went to Israel, we were able to see from where that uh, was that he gave that sermon. And he's looking off over the Sea of Galilee, and there's lots of agriculture, and off in the distance where the Jordan River flows out, and, and in the far distance to the south, uh, to the Dead Sea, as he gives this sermon and, of course, one of the most salty places on earth. Verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its nightstand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means from the law, means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will, not, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now here Jesus calls to his followers to the highest conduct of standards. And in fact, he calls each one of us to that same thing, to a very, very high calling. He commanded us to love our enemy, to forgive those who do us wrong, and, uh, and to be sure that we do such with the purest motives. He said there were two roads, uh, the wide road and then a narrow road the narrow road leading to life, and the wide road leading to destruction. Here in today's gospel verses, as we see it, he calls those who to follow him to truly motivate uh, to be a godly influence in the world which they live. That's a tough command, isn't it? But he truly high, holds us to that very, very high command. In fact, he expects the world to be transformed by our presence. The very presence of you and I in front of somebody of the world, he expects us to be them to be transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to honor these words that he gives by truly living a life that's recognized that we're different from the world. Our genuine Christian walk will preach louder to the unsaved and the unchurched than anything that you or I could ever say. How it is that we act and, and the things that we do. What have we been saying to the world as we walk, as we talk, as we have the different actions in our life. I have a, uh, uh, an atheist co-worker, he and our friends, um, but he made a post one time and, and I, I didn't like it at all. Matter of fact, it kind of upset me. But the more I got to thinking about it, uh, the more I thought, unfortunately, it's true. It says, to most Christians, the Bible is just like a software agreement. You just scroll to the bottom and hit, I agree. Isn't that sad? Is that how the world views us? Is that how the world views you? That you don't really read the Bible. You don't really understand everything about the Bible. But you just scroll down and say, hey, I agree with everything that says. I don't know about you, but I've never read a, a software agreement. I, I don't, you know, I'm just looking for the box. Um, is that what we do in the Bible? We're just looking for the box to check off and we're good. We feel like uh, that that's, that's enough. In fact, it's not. Um, you know, we, we truly have to live as defined. I want to give you five points that's going to uh, show the difference between an ordinary believer and an authentic believer. And there is a difference. And ordinary believers are afraid of giants. Authentic believers kill them. In First Samuel, uh, Samuel chapter 17, where David sli- uh, slayed Goliath, you know, he was able to overcome him. It's not about the death, it's about the power of the Lord. And that's the same thing for our life. We all have a lot of giants in our life, amen? And we have the power to overcome those. We have the power to reach out and, and, to, and to be um, victorious over those things. Ordinary believers seldom forget. Authentic believers always forgive. Luke 6.31 says, forgive and you will be forgiven. You know, the thorn of unforgiveness is the, the worst thorn, I think, that anybody can carry. It just crushes the spirit. It is, it's, it's such a dark cloud that we carry in our lives that it's hard to do anything else. It's hard to be victorious in anything because we've got that thorn of unforgiveness and that there's one person that probably doesn't even know uh, that you don't forgive them. And so you've got to be able to release that to truly walk in Christ. Ordinary believers control their finances. Authentic believers turn them over to God. You know, in my own life, you know, I tried to control my finances and it was a mess. My parents are sitting here. They could tell you, they'd shake their head and say, yep, it was. We had to pay some of that. Um, 
But you know what? When I finally turn my finances over to God, I mean, it's like, wow. I mean, it's amazing what God does in our life. And my family can attest to that. The people that I work with can attest to that, that um, I am faithful with my finances. And God has so much blessed that. I can't even begin to express to you. I don't have time. You'd get bored with the story because I could stay here for 10 hours and tell you all the great miraculous things that God has done. Ordinary believers fight for their rights, but authentic believers have no rights. You know, defining that, you know, a, a true authentic believer will serve someone else first and put them first in true servanthood. And so if we're a true servant, then we would give up our rights, but we would fight for the right of somebody else and that we would serve them because ultimately that's what Christ would do. Matter of fact, ultimately that's what Christ did. He gave up all his rights for those that would follow. Ordinary believers fear death. Authentic believers have already died. You know, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to... You know, Jesus already overcome that. Death no longer has its sting. If we are truly resided in, in Christ through the Holy Spirit and we're an authentic believer, you don't have to fear death. There's nothing that it can do to overcome your life. Jesus has already done that for us. To hear Jesus' word, he says, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by men. Now, at first glance, whenever we see that, um, it's hard to understand. There's, there's really no such thing as unsalty salt. I mean, if salt is salt, it's salt, right? I mean, it doesn't, there's not weak salt, strong salt. Uh, you know, when you have salt, it all tastes the same no matter where you go. And it has a great effect, and you have an expectation for the word salt. When you hear salt, you think, okay, it's salt. I, I know what to expect. What about the word Christian? What's the expectation for that? When the world, when the world hears the word Christian... What is their expectation? What is it that they feel um, that that would deliver to them? Sodium chloride, uh, you know, table salt, Morton Salt Company, uh, they produce a pure salt. Uh, in the first century, of course, they weren't around. And when they uh, mined for salt back in the first century, they mined it in a quarry, and what they pulled out wasn't pure. It had a lot of different minerals and a lot of different things in there that didn't belong, and so they would take that, and occasionally they, the salt they'd have to pour out because it wasn't pure. Uh, I don't know, it would be a surprise if you got salt, and it's like, oh, that tastes like dirt. Um, and so they would take it, and they'd throw it out in the driveway, and over time it would harden their driveway, and so it was, it was a waste. It wasn't worth anything. And Jesus says in these verses that if we as his followers are going to change the world, we have to be pure salt. We have to be the real deal. Or we would be what? We'd be thrown out and trampled on uh, by men. Our lives can't be a mixture of impurities. We have to be uncompromised, pure and authentic. That's a word that I want you to remember is the word authentic. And that's the word that we're talking about this morning, of course. But if Jesus says you're salt of the earth, then in fact we have to be that way. Will Rogers said, you need to live in such a way that you're not afraid to sell your parrot to the town gossip. How about that? You go down to Huntsville Square and take your parrot and, you know, put him up for sale. And he'd just be over there, you know, Kobe's a gossip. Kobe's a gossip. Um, Brian's mean to the kids. Brian's mean to the kids. So there would be, you know, there, there would be a, an opportunity for, uh, you know, everything that, that the parrot knew about, he'd be, you know, rattling it off. Well, how about if the parrot went and he said, he's authentic, he's authentic. They'd get tired of hearing it. They'd be like, break his neck. 
One thing that lives, that limits our influence in the world is that people that are in Christ, supposedly, they claim to be authentic when in fact they're not. An inconsistent lifestyle repels people from the church. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that they're Christians when in fact their life is impure. I went to a store the other day that I I was visiting and uh, there was a salesman there and I walked in and I heard him about the time I walked in cussing at this other salesman and going on and I was like, whew. And so we had a meeting there shortly after. But, um, but during that meeting, we were doing introductions, and, and uh, it was a, a new sales staff. And he went around and told everybody that he was a godly man, that he follows uh, the commands that his God gives him. And I thought about that. I'm like, how can that be? Now, I'm not judging him. I mean, we're all imperfect. But I thought about that, and I thought, man, what about us? We go through somewhere, and we tell somebody, hey, I'm a, I'm a godly man. And then I turn around and I act like a, a dodo. And, you know, it, it's, it just destroys everything that we live for. If you want to give the devil a leg up around the people that you influence, act non-authentic. Don't act like a Christian. Claim to be one. And guess what? All you're doing is helping out the devil. Because he's saying, see, I told you that. Told you. Told you, Chris, that guy that you were around over there, he's, he's, he's not authentic. He's nothing. I don't want people to say that about me. I don't want people to say that about you. I don't want people to say that about our church. I want them to be able to say, hey, they are authentic. They truly do walk in Christ. And corporately, we have to do that, not just individually, but corporately. You know, we may be the only Bible that those people will ever see. The visitors that come in this church, you know, and nobody said hi, and they see somebody else yelling at somebody else or you know, whatever the case may be, I mean, they need to see that we're truly authentic. Our life needs to portray grace. Our life needs to only be the Scriptures, define the Scriptures that we read, define the Scriptures that we would study. So ask the question, you know, how authentic is your walk? Does your life influence those people that are around you? Just like the salesman that I talked about, what do godly men do? What do godly women do? How is it that you act? How is it that you're perceived? In a letter to the Galatians, Paul informs us what life looks like when the Holy Spirit is active. It says that you'll be filled with the joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's a hard one. Goodness. Do the people you work with, do your family members, do they see that you're genuine? Do they see that you have the fruit of the Spirit that's growing in your life? So I ask the question, are you the real deal? Or is there so much impurity in your life that you're being tossed out onto the, onto the walkway to be hardened and be trampled on by men? The key to being authentic, the key to being real, is not appearing to be perfect. That's not what God's after. Because if, in fact, that we're trying to make everybody think that we're perfect, then we're just living a lie. We're just living in hypocrisy. And that's not what God's asking for. In fact, for us to live a life, a life like that, we're just wearing a mask. Church, we do have an obligation to live a certain way. Paul addressed the fellowship in Thessalonica. Forgive me. To the church in Sardis, he said, I know your deeds. And you have a reputation for being alive, but in fact you are dead. It says that your conduct has no character. Are you kidding me? What if God come and said that? He said, hey, KD, your conduct has no character. I would, I would be crushed to know that, as I'm sure that you would be. 
And so we have to live a life that our conduct does have character. The church in Laodicea, he said, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold, and you're neither, uh, neither one. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I don't want that. I don't know about you, but I can't stand the taste of broccoli and Brussels sprouts. Um, I mean, I would spit that out of my mouth just like that. Um, what do we spit out of our mouth? That's things that are distasteful. Well, God's saying that, you know, to be lukewarm, like Brussels sprouts, I'm going to put those two in one, one category, they're distasteful. He says, hey, if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's pretty strong. God is consistent in His teaching. He's telling us here at Trinity that it's time to start walking the walk. Start walking the talk. In ancient Greece, they had great theatrical events and large amphitheaters. And we were in Israel. We had an opportunity to see a couple of those. And they were massive. They were much, much larger than where we're at here today. Maybe four or five times the size. And it's really amazing. How were they able to portray the emotions and and the different things and the different characters at that time. They didn't remember they didn't have sound systems and, and all those different things. It was very kind of rough, but somewhat magical when you walked into those places. They didn't have cameras to zoom in. Um, it was all uh, through theatrics. So they invented a system. They developed these large masks that had megaphones built in. And that way they were able to portray the emotions by having a larger mask and a megaphone to portray their voice out of somebody else different that they were acting. Hippocrates was, in fact, a, a man that lived uh, in 450 to 339 B.C., and he was famous for preaching, you know, the saying, do as I say, not as I do. Well, Hippocrates, he was famous for that. In fact, he stood and, and preached a word one time about how that facial hair on a man was likened to that of a dog or a lion. And, in fact, he had a beard, and, but he thought it was beautiful. Can you imagine how people were laughing at him? I mean, look, he's got a beard there and it's all scraggly and nasty looking. I mean, what's he talking about? Is he talking about himself? But in fact, that he was preaching a word that was in fact hypocritical to the way that he acted. I wonder if the world looks at us that, some, that way sometimes. We might look just as silly. Can you imagine me giving that speech? I have facial hair. Man, you look silly. I mean, you look kind of dumb. Um, and in fact, I have facial hair. I mean, that would be crazy. That's how crazy this Hippocrates was. And in fact, when we look at that and, and to see that hypocrites would be derived from that, his very name, I don't know about you, but it kind of gives me shudders to think about that. Is the world laughing at me like that? And in fact, they are. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 25 through 28. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. And we might look at this verse and say, oh, I, I, I have no outward sin. I'm, I'm good. But what about our worship? What about our prayer life? What about our giving? Maybe God looks at us that way. Maybe he looks at us as a hypocrite. He says, hey, I know you've got, I know you got the outside sins. I know you got that. I'm not worried about that. What about this other stuff? What about the worship to me? What about your prayer life? What about your giving? I need you to get that fixed. I need you to get that under control. I know you got the other stuff. That's easy. That is the easy part of living in Christ. The tough stuff is the stuff that only Christ sees. That's the stuff that we got to fix. That's the stuff that he's asking us to correct. 
You see, God wants to change us, but not superficially. He wants to change us from the core. He wants to change us from the very person that we are. You know, Jesus calls us to influence the world towards godliness, but there's only one way to do that, and that's to be authentic. You can't do it being a hypocrite. There is no influence there. We must have faith in him that changes us from the inside out. To be able to really influence people for Christ, then they have to be able to see that Christ truly influenced us. They have to see that Christ truly did change us. If If we can't show that, then there is no influence. Christians have to be the good news before they can share the good news. You know, Peanuts, the cartoon, is, is long, long gone. Some of you don't know what that is, but others would remember. But uh, Peppermint Patty was talking to Charlie Brown, and she says, Chuck, it's my first day at uh, school today, and I got sent to the principal's office, and it's your fault. What do you mean it's my fault? Why are you always saying things are my fault? Well, you're my friend, aren't you, Chuck? Then it's your fault. Well, when in fact, Peppermint Patty was trying to pass the buck to Chuck. She was, in fact, right. It was partially Chuck's fault because Chuck is her friend. He should have influenced her in a more positive way. And it's up to us. And in fact, we do have a great influence for either good or for bad. And we have to make that decision because you are influencing something and someone. Just like the pastor at the church and he was building a, uh, a trellis for the climbing vine at the church and he was pounding away and he noticed that a young boy was behind him watching. And so uh, he, ne- he thought, well, I'll just keep working. He'll go away. And he didn't. He turned around. And he said, are you looking for hints on gardening? He said, no, I'm just waiting to see what a preacher says when he hit his uh, thumb with a hammer. <laughs> Who's waiting and watching to see what you're going to say? They see you're in a situation. They're waiting for you to react. They're waiting to see what is it that you're going to say? How is it that you're going to react? Just like the little boy for the preacher, you know, we thought that they were standing there admiring us, but in fact, they were waiting for us to be hypocritical. They were waiting for us to be non-authentic. Salt is a seasoning, a preservative, but, you know, unless it comes in contact with something, it's, it's really, it's wasted. Salt becomes invisible. When you put salt on a food, it becomes invisible, but it has a visible effect. But salt by itself is really, it's just fine particles. It's, it's nothing else. Um, it doesn't really have any effect sitting there. But whenever you rub that into the meat or you, you put salt on a vegetable or my favorite watermelon, um, it has a great effect. It's doing its job. It's influencing the flavor. Well, the same would be for us that, I mean, if we're going to have an effect, if we're going to do something, then we have to come in ta- contact with that's that we're supposed to be influencing. Much like believers who become complacent, who no longer share grace, they refuse to take a moral stand. They refuse to share their faith. They lead an unproductive life for the kingdom. They don't pay their tithes. They don't donate time. They don't give special offerings. They're just sitting there, worthless. Just sitting there, doing nothing. Just like the salt is, it's just sitting there, doing nothing. But, you know, until we come in contact with the very thing that we're supposed to influence, we really have no value in the kingdom. And it is that we're called for. Now, the Holy Spirit's probably doing a little surgery and he, uh, he might be making you a little uncomfortable trying to cut out the compromise that we talked about earlier. But I have to go back and ask the question, are you wearing a mask? Or are you being authentic? Are you a hypocrite? Is your salt just sitting on the shelf doing nothing? Just sitting there. Your time, 
It's in a salt shaker. It's sitting at the table. It's not really doing anything. It's just worthless because we're not investing in the kingdom. Your tithe, your offering, just sitting there. Your talents, it's just sitting there doing nothing. But when you take it and you pour it out onto the people, you pour it out onto the church, you pour it out on the very thing that we're influenced, now it's something. Now it, it really has meaning. It really has tremendous influence. So what do we say and do to the influences that God gives us? How is it that we act? What is that effect having on the lives? You're the salt of the world. You're the light of the world. Let both your light and your life shine on men so that your good works may be seen and, be, and glorify our Father in heaven. So how do we do that? We've talked about how God expects the world to be transformed by our presence, but what about our giving? See, we can transform the world through our giving as well. 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 5, Paul's telling the church in Corinth, and he's bragging on them uh, to the other churches, in particular the church of Macedonia. And he's been telling them about all that they've been doing and their generous giving. He also explains to them that there's, they've been such a great example that there's other churches that are following their lead. So he sent some representatives from Macedonia to Achaia to, to verify and, and to help prepare the gift, to make sure it's been given joyfully, not grudgingly. Which brings us to our final text in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. That's powerful. You know, we, it says that we will be enriched. It says it in every way so that we can always become generous so that you can give the needs that are, and give to the needs that are necessary. You know, God has shown us through these verses, you know, the, the miracles that he promises that to give generously and, and to fulfill those promises. The gifts we pledge and then give us enough to have left over to be generous in the future. And make no mistake about that, to go back to the verses, it says in verse 10, For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity. Are you kidding? We have a guarantee from the God who created the heavens, the God that created the whole world, the God that gave his son, the God that raised him from the dead, gives you and I the same promise that if we're generous, he'll provide all and then some. There's a lot of promises in the Bible, and this one's no different. We are guaranteed that. He says it in his word. What better deal do you need than that? I mean, we have people in our church that have lived through these very verses in the last campaign that we have. Can I have an amen? Is there any of you in here? We also have people in their own lives that, you know, live through those verses, and then it's, it's amazing how God provides, and there's plenty. But what is he looking for? He's looking for a generous heart. 
He's looking for somebody that's going to give their time, somebody's going to give their, their resources, somebody's going to give their tithes, their special offerings, all those different things. He promises that. There's going to be not only enough for that, but and then some. Why? Because he wants you to continue that. Because it says that we will always be generous. God wants us to be real. He expects the authentic Christian to obey each characteristic that we've seen this morning. But too often or not, we pick and choose which one that we're going to fulfill. But that's not authentic Christianity. That's not an authentic Christian. In fact, there's only 13% of people sitting in the pews across the nation that tithe to the church. There's about 500 seats in here. If I had 65 people over here stand up, only 13%. We can't get done what God's called us to do on 13%. Could he find a way to do it? Sure he could. But why not us? Why would we miss the blessing? He goes back and it says there in the verses that we'll be blessed. He promises that. And the tithers, it doesn't mean that only 13% give something because there's more than that that gives something. But he's looking for those that truly follow his command, that would truly tithe. And only, 10%, only 13% give 10%. We get mad when Pastor D starts asking us to fulfill the characteristic of giving and the principles of giving. Why? Because it's not really acceptable to society. It's not how we're raised to give away the very things uh, that we work for. I've been reading a book that says, How to Be Happy Giving Away All Your Money. Um, but you know what? We can be that way. Why? Because the promises of God. Because there's nothing better, and you know it. If you've been part of giving, you know what I'm talking about. There's not a better feeling. There's nothing that can happen that would give you a better feeling than that. You know, when Pastor D asked us to conform to the, to the uh, characteristics of praying, of uh, being nice to each other, of serving, we're okay with that. It's easy. It's a widely accepted thing. But when we're asked to conform to the, to the principle of giving, now we got a problem. Why? Because, man, I worked 40 hours last week for all I got, and then some. And the government took part of it, and my kids are taking part of it, and um, the bills are taking the rest of it. But, you know, God doesn't say, pay your bills and I'll give you more. He didn't say that, did he? He said, be generous. And there will always be enough for that and then some. You know, the definition of an authentic Christian is not check the answers that apply or the characteristics that apply. It's truly defined in Scripture. It's defined as exactly how we're supposed to be. Yet some Christians choose not to follow all of that. Obviously, you know, we can't be perfect. We've already discovered that. But to give our best, as we discovered last week when Pastor talked about excellent, to give our best is being excellent. That's all God asks. All He asks is for us to be excellent. Just give it our best. He knows all of our hearts. But, you know, He's asking for us to bump up against that threshold of comfort. He's asking for us to strive and give a little more of our time and our resources and our money and our heart. You know, some of the things we talk about today, it's hard enough just to give prayer time. You know, what about true prayer time? What about true worship? You know, does he receive our worship and he goes, pew, pew, that's distasteful. I don't like that. Or does he, does he just, you know, just be glorified in that? Does he love that because our worship is sincere, because it has uh, all kinds of power? 
two quotes, one by Simone de Beauvoir, that says, That's what I consider true generosity, to give your all, yet you feel as it cost you nothing. That's true generosity. Or another one that says, If you're a Christian, think of Christ, who came not to be served by others, but to serve them in joy, peace, and in generosity. For these things, they're not mere words, but acts, which go right up to their last breath. Even their death is a gift, and resurrection is born from this kind of death. Now that's generosity. That's a powerful description of how that we're to be. So here's your challenge. How authentic is your walk? Are the people around you drawn to faith by your life? Are people around you drawn to the church because of how you act? Do people recognize that you live in a different way? Do people see that your finances are dispersed differently than theirs? Do they see your generous spirit? Do they see your obedience in giving? Because they're watching, just like the little boy watching the pastor. You know, you say that you're a Christian, and if you think the atheists and the people that don't know, don't know the Scriptures, you're wrong. They know it sometimes better than the church. And they're watching, they're seeing. So what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about the compromise? What are we going to do to be authentic? What are you going to do to start changing your giving and start living the blessings that God has promised us? The blessings, you know, they're not reserved for the elite. The blessings that God promises are reserved for the obedient to claim. God's calling the authentic. He's calling on the ones that would follow Him. And I'm asking, would that be you? Amen. We've been challenged, haven't we? Wasn't that a great word? That's, amen. Thankful to be a part of a church where that the deacons can preach and teach just like the pastors, aren't you? It's true deaconship. It's what leadership and the scripture is all about i appreciate all of our board and thank you kd for delivering that word what a challenge to us it's it's not an easy word how many of you all would have liked to have been the one to get to deliver that message today and i heard a lot of strong amens but there were a few kind of quiet uncomfortable moments during that message I don't look as though at those as negative things, but I look at those instead of times where people were being reflective and saying, Ooh, let me listen to you, Holy Spirit. What are you saying? And I think the Lord is working in our lives. It's, it's amazing how that when we, when we talk about authenticity, uh, how that we can make Christians who should exemplify the definition of the very word so uncomfortable sometimes. We are confronted with the issues in our own places in our own life where we're like, I'm authentic here, but maybe not there, maybe not there. And God is saying, you know, I can, I can keep whatever you commit to me, but I'm not in charge of what you don't. And so here today, we're being given an opportunity to examine ourselves in light of the word today. How authentic am I? Am I the same all the time or am I up and down and all around? How authentic am I? Am, 
Am I, do, I, do I live what I preach in every area of your life? Examine yourself today. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And if there's a place where that, where that you got quiet, if there was a place in there where you were like, ouch, move on, then don't move on. Right there at that place, hitch up the boat to a stump and stop for a little while. Stay right there and pray for a minute. Say, oh God, there's a spot in me that, that needs a little bit of help. There's a spot in me that I need to think about and repent for and I need change. Would you change me? And can we just do that all over this room just for a moment? Just take a, a, just a couple of, of maybe even minutes of silence to just reflect on this word today and say, God, what are you doing in me and what do you want me to change? Is there an area in my life where I need to do better? Is there a place where I could be more genuine, where I could be more real, where I could be more sincere? Can I be more authentic? God, I don't want to be that hypocrite. I don't want to be that one that is a joke. I want to be authentic. Take just a moment there and let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. just continue but I do want to give someone an opportunity sitting here today hearing this word and saying I'm not a believer but I'm convinced that I need to be God's word today has convinced me of my sin and my need for change I want to give you an opportunity today if that's you to Act upon the word in faith and receive Christ as your Savior. If you've never done that, or maybe you thought you did at one time, but it wasn't really genuine, or maybe you did, but you walked away from God, something has come between you and Him. If there's something between you and God, no matter whether you prayed it at one time or never did, if there's something between you and God today, don't leave this room in that condition. While all the people in this room are praying about the various things in their own individual lives, I want to give those of you an opportunity who know things are not right between you and the Lord for you to make them right. He is calling to you right now. He is convicting you. That's that uncomfortable feeling that you feel right now is conviction. And God is wanting to forgive you. The Christianese term for that is to save you, to save you from the sin to save you from impending uh, ultimate damnation in hell that's going to come someday. And God doesn't want that for any person, but he wants to have a personal relationship with you. So I'm the only one looking right now, but I am looking all across this room. And I'm asking if that's you that would say, Pastor, I want to ask Jesus to come into my heart and forgive me for my sins. I'm ready. I'm ready to turn from my lifestyle. I'm ready to give myself to Christ. I want to follow him and be his disciple. 
if that's you, would you hold up your hand? And very, I'm just going to scan the crowd and look for that hand. If you, if you'll raise that hand, I'll, I'll, I'll see you. Raise it and hold it up long enough for me to be able to scan through this whole group here. Amen. God, you know our hearts and you know the condition of our soul today. Don't let one of us escape your conviction, but every one of us, let us make decisions to follow you, to make you the Lord of our life. You're going to be our Lord and our Savior. You're our master and the authority of our life. We want to represent you and be authentic. Thank you for your word today, God. Praise you for conviction that came with it. In Jesus' name, amen.